0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Afternoon, everyone. Nice to be together again. I read a story of two teenagers who had asked their father if they could go to the movies. All their friends were going. It was a popular movie that was out. And after, before he allowed them to go, he read some reviews online. And if he read some reviews, he brought them in and he denied their request. He said, I'm not going to allow you to go. Of course, they complained. Come on, Dad, why not? It's, it's, it's only rated PG-13, and we're both older than 13. Well, what I read is that the movie contains some nudity, and it portrays immorality, which you know is something that God hates. It's not normal, and it's not acceptable behavior, and there's no need for you to go. But that, come on, those are only small parts of the movie. Our other friends have already seen it, and they told us it's just a small part. The movie's two hours long, and the top parts you're talking about, it just represents a few minutes of the total film. In fact, it's based on a true story. And good triumphs over evil, and there are other redeeming qualities of the movie, like courage and self-sacrifice. Even if you go to this Christian movie website, it even says that. It promotes that movie. The father said, listen, my answer is no. It's my final answer. You're welcome to stay home tonight, bring all your friends over. We've got lots of good movies that we've seen before. But you cannot go and you cannot watch that film. The discussion is over. So the two siblings walked dejectedly back to their back to the living room and slumped down on the couch. And as they were sulking, they were surprised to hear the sound of their father rummaging around in the kitchen. They soon recognized the wonderful smell of brownies being made. And one of the, t- the two siblings said to the other, Dad must be feeling guilty. So now he's feeling a little guilty. He's going to try to make it up to us by making us some brownies. If we soften him up and talk real nice to him, when he brings them out to us, maybe we can still go to the movies. We'll be able to persuade him. And sure enough, they were not disappointed. Their father appeared in the living room with a big plate of nice, warm, fresh brownies, which he offered to the kids. They each took one, and the father said, before you eat, I want to tell you both something. I want you to know that I love you both so much. The Teenagers took a quick glance at each other with knowing glances that, okay, here it's coming. He's softening up a bit. We'll probably be able to go. That's why I've made these brownies with the very best ingredients. I've made them from scratch. In fact, the ingredients are even organic, I made it with the best organic flour, I made it the best free-range eggs, the best organic sugar, premium vanilla, and premium chocolate. The brownies looked so mouth the teens began to become a little impatient with Dad's unending speech. But I want to be perfectly honest with you. There is one ingredient that I added that is not usually found in brownies. I got that ingredient from our house. It comes from our house. But don't worry. In fact, I added such a tiny amount that you're not going to know. It's practically insignificant. So go ahead, take a bite, let me know what you think. Hang on, Dad, tell us what that mystery ingredient is before we continue to eat. Why? If the portion's so small, you're not even going to know it's there. It's properly cooked. It was just a third of a teaspoon. You're not even going to know. Come on, Dad, tell us what the ingredients is. Don't worry, it's organic like the rest of the stuff. You're not going to know what. You're not going even be able to taste it. Come on, Dad, tell us. Well, okay, if you insist, it's hamster droppings. Just a third of a teaspoon of hamster droppings, but it's properly cooked. It, you're, it's, you won't even know what's in there. The, the, the brownies are this big. I added a third of a teaspoon. Come on, Dad. Oh, it's like, why did you? Why did you do that? You've tortured us by making us smell these brownies for the last hour and a half while you're baking them. And now you're going to tell us that there's hamster droppings in there? We can't eat these. Why not? It's so small compared to the rest of the ingredients. It's not going to hurt you. In fact, it's completely cooked. And when it's completely cooked, the germs are gone. You won't even taste it. And and it has the same consistency as the brownies. Go ahead. go, Go on and eat it. Come on, Dad. I'm not touching that. And that is the same reason I can't let you go to the movie. You won't tolerate a little hamster dropping in your brownies. So why would you tolerate a little immorality in your movies? We pray that God will not lead us into temptation. So how can we in good conscience entertain ourselves with something that will imprint a sinful image in our minds and will lead us into temptation long after we first see it? I apologize if the story was a little less than... I actually cleaned it up. Hamster droppings I thought were better than what I did read. But it proves a good point. It proves a good point. As we've heard in, I believe, the sermonette, we heard a little bit in the in the study, we are quick on the physical to be able to picture when things are not right. But it is easy for us to overlook the important things like... Sin. Is it me, or is it evil, or is evil, filth, and sin becoming more and more acceptable in today's world? Every generation, and I heard it from my parents, and I know my kids hear it from me, hear that it was a lot better when I was a kid. But I can't help but think that it is true. Look at what we are surrounded with today. Look how language is so acceptable today. Look at the kind of dress that has become the norm today. Look at what we see on TV, what is in movies, what is in music, social media, social media. The things that I see people liking or supporting that are in direct contradiction to our beliefs makes me feel ashamed sometimes. Turn with me to Matthew 24 as we start the message. Matthew 24. Society has changed and continues to change to the point where what used to be absolutely unacceptable has become acceptable and now even encouraged. Verse 4 of Matthew 24, Christ says, he answers them. Obviously, we understand the context. This is long before he's talking about time in the future that is before Christ's second coming the world that is promised to degrade. We see that in verse 4. Take heed. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars, so that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and the kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Because lawlessness will abound, agape will. Will grow cold. He's not talking to the world here because the world doesn't know agape. The world is not putting on the love of God. Because lawlessness surrounds us, agape in some will dissipate. Because there's so much sin everywhere, as bad as we read later in the days of Noah verse 36 to 38, which we will not read, but you can see that down there. We've read that before. Because there is so much sin at this time when he's talking about, God's people will show signs of losing their passion for him, that agape will subside, agape will dissipate. God's people will fall out of love with him and with his people. But verse 13 that we read gives us hope. But he who endures to the end, Shall be saved. Today, what I'd like to do is to talk about sin and our attitude towards it. As Brother Jan mentioned, Passover is three months away now. That's less than three months. How does sin make you feel? How does sin make God feel? How does God feel about sin? And are we becoming? by virtue of being surrounded by lawlessness, just a little indifferent toward the concept of sin. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, and begin with the famous story of Cain and Abel. We're quite familiar with the story, so we won't read it in its entirety. Jumping into the context, we know it had to do with an acceptable offering and an unacceptable offering and some jealousy. Verse 8 Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God's emotion here towards that sin is on display. Does the pain, the hurt, and the shame that is, inf- that is inflicted on the innocent touch a nerve with us? Does it bother us? If we are building the character of God, it should. It should bother us to see sin in this world. Yesterday I was traveling with a, I was coming back from Montreal. I was in Montreal for a couple of days, traveling with a colleague, and we were sitting in the airport yesterday early afternoon. We were on, each of us on a couple of separate conference calls, but near us was a young family. There was a middle-aged man, a little slightly older than middle-aged, with a very young wife and five kids sitting in the airport yesterday. He sat alone off in a corner while his wife, a good 15, 20, 25 feet away, was trying to keep the five youngsters, they were less than eight years old, between eight and three, trying to keep them all under control. He sat off alone while he left his wife to do that, to look after these kids on her own. He would come over from time to time and Try to discreetly, but it was quite obvious to me and my, my colleague, berate her for her lack of control. And once, he even stomped on the foot of one of his young sons to try to get him under control, who then bit his lip trying to avoid the, to cry, his quivering lip to avoid crying. At, young, at one point, the young boy found joy in wheeling my colleague's Suitcase back and forth. He just sat there and sort of wheeled it back and forth with a big smile on his face. And typically, we would say, "Hey, don't touch, don't touch our suitcase." But that was the only joy the kid was finding at this point in 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 the the mayhem that was at the airport yesterday. And then he turned to wave at us as he boarded the plane with his family. Watching that happen, I'm a people watcher. I can only imagine what home is like for that family. If that is how it is in public. Does pain inflict it upon others? Do we feel that pain? Genesis 6 verse 6 tells us, you can turn there. That the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So as we read the Bible... We sometimes don't see God as the emotional being that he is. But when Abel was killed, he said his blood cried out to the ground to him because there was innocent blood shed for no reason. And that God felt the pain that his creation was going through when Abel was killed. Here, as we project years into the future from Cain and Abel, when the world is full of sin, God was sorry that he made us. We go from Genesis 1 that tells us we were very good. Everything else in creation that was made day by day was good, but when he made man, it was very good. To not much time in the future that he was sorry he did this. There was a part of him that was sorry that he made us. We see It's because it's easy to see how God feels about sin. First Samuel fifteen is another example. First Samuel fifteen. Verse ten. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. God continues through the pages of his scripture to show his feeling when we let him down, when we sin. Sin bothers God. God is emotional when he sees his creation turning their back on him. Blood cries out, to the, cries out from the ground. To our creator. Let's go to Revelation 22. Here are a list. Of depraved acts. That those who insist on practicing them. Will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. And we can see why. When we go through them. We can see why. Blessed are those, verse 14, Revelation 22. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now these are depraved acts. We can understand why these acts are not allowed into the kingdom sexually immoral people who are sorcerers and practice witchcraft and murderers and serial murders and these are very the depths of depravity when we think of those in our society who practice these depraved acts it makes us sick we we can't stomach to see on tv another murder or another another i i, I I can't, even, I can't even come up with it. Incest or rape or whatever happens that we see, which is all over the news now. It's, it's, news is just bad from start to finish. It makes us sick. Even the most indifferent among us can't stomach the thought of serial murders, rapists, pedophiles, sodomites, pornographers. But let's turn to another list. It's, it's easy to get that list. Let's go back to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes and shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers with perversity in his heart. He devises evil continually he sows discord therefore his calamity shall come suddenly and suddenly he shall be broken without remedy so God is through the the Solomon the writer of proverbs he's talking about depraved individuals here he continues with this these six things the lord hates yes seven are an abomination to him so he's about to give us a list of things that he finds Abominable. Things he he absolutely hates. A proud look. A proud look? We've got a list of sorcerers and murderers and dogs and pedophilia and all these other things that we see God writing about in Revelation. And here he talks that he hates a proud look. It hardly seems worth mentioning. A proud look? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sorts discord, so is discord among brethren. A proud look God hates. That, that's hardly worth putting on the same level as what we read about in Revelation to me. The human, the human mind here that we heard about in the, the sermonette, the, the spirit and man, the mind and man. Without God's spirit, I look at this and I say, there are other things to worry about, don't you think? Besides a proud look, a lying tongue. We've come up, our society's developed acceptable levels of bad. There are little white lies and those are okay. Or fibs. We have euphemisms to replace curse words because that's okay. We have the Young Offenders Act, which values the lives of a sinner who happens to be under 18 over the life of someone who dies. So our society has developed various levels of acceptable sin. And here, God says, I hate a proud look. I hate a lying tongue. He hasn't even got into the stuff that he talks about in Revelation. I don't see serial murders or sexually immoral people or sorcery here. I lies, someone who caused a little discontent amongst some people, people who who like evil so they'll run off quickly to find it. That doesn't seem hardly worth mentioning in terms of all the other huge things that we read, read about. But it matters to God because every little bit of sin matters to God. A proud look is just as bad as sorcery. A lying tongue is just as bad as murderers. Sin matters to God. The lives of the innocent, whose blood is shed at the hand of sin, cries out to God. Does it matter to us? Does it affect us the same way it affects God? Turn with me to Psalms 106, the 106th Psalm. When we read the prophets, one thing that stands out that we may or may not have considered is the pathos or empathy or emotions of God that are evident through the the messages of the prophets. God is often perceived and conveyed as this mean, onerous, ogreous Old Testament being that is just worried about keeping you in line. And, but when we read the messages to the prophets and we dig into them and read them, we see a creator who is emotional about his creation. And he conveys this emotion through the pens and the writings of the prophets. And here we see this conveyed through David, who, in Peter calls in Acts 2, a prophet. And in 2 Samuel 23... You don't need to turn there. That David said God spoke to His people through David. So David is considered—he was a king. He's a part of his his uh, scriptures are part of the writings, but he's considered a prophet because God conveys, conveyed through David his message to his people as well, which is why he's considered in part a prophet. Little known for being a prophet, but even Peter says so in his Acts, his Pentecost sermon. And we see God's emotion conveyed through the pens of the prophets. And we'll start here with David in Psalms 106, verse 34. They didn't destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. Again, this is a, a historical account of God's people. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. Mingled with the Gentiles. They didn't dive in and become abhorrent with all of the, the extreme sins initially, they mingled. The knock came on the door. There was a Gentile on the other side. There was Satan trying to, to, to entice his people. He doesn't entice him with something huge. Listen, I know you're not going to do that. Let me come in. Let's talk about this. This, this isn't that bad. And God's people allowed themselves to mingle with them, and therefore learned their works. They, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed to their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds." So here, David starts out here by talking about how they mingled with the Gentiles. They became completely depraved and away from God, but it started out simply by mingling, simply by dabbling. You know what, I'm not going to do that, but let me try this. This can't be that bad. Let me just try a little bit over here. And we're going to see now how emotionally involved God is with us, his people. Let's look first at anger. Pastor Adrian talked a number of weeks back about the five stages of grief. Here God shows anger. Therefore, verse forty The wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people, it said he abhorred his own inheritance, and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection unto under their head. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low. For their iniquity. So God is watching over time his people begin to dabble and mingle a little bit with sin and get to the point where they are completely and utterly depraved, to the point where again he abhors his own people. He absolutely cannot stand to be in the same room as his people. But nevertheless, verse 44, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. God is an emotional creator. As much as he gets angry with his people, he also loves his people. He created us. He wants, as we heard in the study and as we heard in the sermonette, he wants us to inherit eternal life. So as much as the sin of his people drives him over the edge to the point where multiple times he says, I hate my people. I hate that I made them. I abhor them. I can't, I can't believe I made them. But they cry. They cry. And they beg for my mercy, and I just love them so much that I relent, and I show because I'm a merciful God that's part of his character, he can't help but show us mercy. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, because he doesn't forget his covenant. No matter how bad we are, no matter what we do to, to turn our back on him, he can't forget the covenant that he made with us. He cannot forget that he made a covenant with us. And he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. So when we continue to read the prophets, what you'll see, and pay attention to this, is the emotion of God. Because sin bothers him. God isn't indifferent to sin. When he sees sin, he the word here is abhorred. He was sorry he made the people. Abel's blood cried out to the ground. He was sorry he he let Saul be king. He gets emotional when he sees sin. He gets emotional when he considers he loves us. And his mercy overrides that anger. But he gets angry when he sees sin. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. The prophet Hosea, one of the early prophets, contemporary of Isaiah, was about to gain a deep insight into the pathos of God towards his people. How did God do that? How did God, rather than just tell Hosea what to write, how did God make Hosea feel his pain? He said in verse two, you go and take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. I want you to go marry a prostitute, an active prostitute. And I want you to build a good marriage with her. You love her and you watch her be unfaithful. Go to chapter three and in verse one. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to the other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. How does that make you feel, Hosea, that you've married someone, that you're trying to love, that you understand, being a Jew, being a, a, an Israelite, that... that This is something that, this is a marriage that you're trying to make work. And you're marrying someone who loves and flirts and gives her love to another. How does that make you feel? Now, when you figure out how that makes you feel, you go tell my people how it makes me feel when they go and are unfaithful to me. And we see that emotion played out in the prophecies of Hosea, from God through Hosea. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 2. here is God's anger. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with a thirst. I will not have mercy on her children for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot, and she she who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and drink. Verse 9. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and will take back my wool and linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause her I will cause all her mirth to cease her feast days her new moons her sabbaths all her appointed feasts. We see God's anger shining through. Hosea as Hosea is conveying God's anger as he understands what it means to be in love with someone who is unfaithful. Then we go and see his mercy play out. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor is a door of hope. And she shall, sing, she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So as angry as I am, I don't give up, he says. I I don't give up that covenant. My mercy will reign out. I will still extend to you that mercy. But I need you to turn back to me. I will come and find you. And as angry as I am, My mercy and my love shines through. Chapter 7. When would I... Verse 1, chapter 7. Notice God's perplexity here. He's got anger. He's got love and mercy. Here we see the emotion that I've labeled perplexity. God is kind of perplexed here. When would I have healed Israel? Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, a band of robbers take spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all of their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them; they are before my face. So even as he battles the anger and overrides it with his mercy, even God says, when would I have healed them? And then if, when I heal them, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered. Even God gets perplexed at how the decisions of his people will, will fall into that we, we become indifferent to sin. That we will not take his mercy and completely follow him 100%. And we see these emotions play out through the prophets. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was was known as the weeping prophet. But he wept because he came to know God's weeping. He came to feel and understand and convey God's emotion. Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah here prophesying on behalf of God. Go back to chapter 8, verse 4. Moreover, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. We will cut into the context now, so this is coming from God himself. Verse 1 of chapter nine: Oh that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go for them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And be like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they don't know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies, and they weary themselves to commit iniquity your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit though and through deceit they refuse to know me they weary themselves to commit iniquity when God sees his people he sees people who we go be we give every effort here he's talking about his his Judah and God is looking at his people and saying they they try to sin they give all of their efforts into committing sin they give everything they've got to try to to turn away from me. I've provided all of this for them. And they their effort is in turning away from me. And he wants to weep day and night when he sees this. Sin bothers God. And not just the sorcery and the murderers and the sexually immoral that we read about in Revelation. But proud looks and lying tongues and little things like mingling with the gentiles dabbling in 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 soft sins. white lies versus being comp- everyone knowing that you're you you are a complete liar euphemisms instead of outright swearing outright using curse words little a little immodest dress. We can go we can I don't want to I don't want to make a list here. But we can see the difference in society as they go through the generations. And as we get down to a certain generation, little things become okay. I've been on Facebook and sometimes the things that I see people like that I know are God followers. I am stunned that anyone would attach their name to that. That I I couldn't even imagine even when I find something and the, the bad Murray who needs to repent smirks at something and go, okay, I've got to repent of that. I would never like that and have everybody else see that I like that. It stuns me to see how we have used social media and what I see on there. And it just goes to show how as society changes, we go just a little bit this way. But God tells us we can't be indifferent to sin. The smallest of sin makes him cry out. The, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. A proud look he hates. A lying tongue he finds absolutely abominable. He cannot stand it. And his people make him cry when they sin just a little bit. We don't have time to dig further. But study the Prophets. And read them from the perspective of an emotional creator who cannot stand sin. And the emotional part is he cannot stand sin, but he absolutely loves us so much that he can't bear to see us even mingle a little bit with sin. Do we hate sin so much that our hearts break for this world? We can't let 24-hour connectivity to news to social media, numb us to the pain that Satan's ways cause. Let's go to Hebrews 3. I've shared with you before in our discussions that I'm, I'm not the most emotional of people. I can be rather stoic. And it surprised me yesterday when I saw that family and that bothered me that much. I could not stand to see him go and berate his wife and then go back 20 feet over there and sit down and let her try to, do these, to take care of these five kids. Something small. But we cannot let Ourselves become numb to the pain that sin sin causes. Hebrews three verse seven. This was in the bulletin this week. This verse was the part part of this was the verse that was quoted. Here Paul quotes the psalmist with a warning about how we can become numb to sin and its effects. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today. In quoting from the psalmist. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation. And they said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily... While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So, Paul has taken the example with the writings of David, looking back at the history of God's people and how they became hardened through the wilderness. He is applying that to our spiritual journey with him, not becoming hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. We can't discount the fact that if we dabble, we allow Satan an opportunity to come in and magnify his way within us. We can't be hardened that sin can deceive us. Sin can have our focus our mind elsewhere. Sin can, sin can get us off our journey and deceive us. We must be attentive to its, fact, to its effects daily. Let's go to Revelation. We've talked about how God feels about sin, the emotion that God conveys in his word when it comes to people who have been suffered the effects of sin or in the writings to the prophets where he conveys his emotion to them as he sees his people Stray. What about some warnings to us today? We talked about, we've talked in several messages, both Brother Adrian and I, on the book of Revelation, and how it's really a clarion call to God's people to check ourselves and make sure we are on the right path with both feet, headed purposefully in the right direction, and ready to take on whatever short term events. Stand between us and the kingdom of God. By way of review, let's go to chapter 1, verse 17. It just says a bit of review. That this book was written to the church. To show, as we read in verse 1, to his people, things which must take place between now and the kingdom. And when, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my my right hand and and the seven golden lampstands, These seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. This message, this book of Revelation, is to the churches, to God's people. And what does he say about some of his people? Verse chapter 2 and in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now this church is a good church. They had persecution and they did not deny Christ. They did not deny their faith. And they stood strong, even in the days of Antipas. So Antipas, and I, I didn't take time to research, but he is made particular mention here, that this church persevered through these days, and they did not deny their faith. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. They stood strong in the face of persecution and did not deny Christ. That is great. That is, partic- is particular mention here to this group. But they were extremely slack in allowing false doctrine, immoral behavior, and the pursuit of gods other than Yahweh. To the outside observer, they were strong in faith. They stood strong in persecution. Antipas did not defeat them. They stood up to those who persecuted them. But to God, he was losing patience with their outer shine and their inner compromise. That they looked good to everybody else. They were strong. The antipaths could not defeat them. Whoever was persecuting them, they stood strong in their face. But you know what? That wasn't enough. It's not enough to be good in front of everybody else. God here said he was losing patience with their inner compromise. Amongst everything they stood for, they they still allowed sexual immorality in some of their people. They still allowed, put stumbling blocks in front of other brethren. That is what is most important to God. We can stand up in the face of persecution. But if we are not true to him, we've got, we got nothing to stand on. We have nothing to stand on. It won't matter what our public message is. If our private message does not stand up to the scrutiny of Yahweh. And this is made clear to the people in Thyatira in the next, the next congregation. These things, verse 18, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So imagine Christ coming here and saying, giving us a list of all of our good things. This is a good church. You're, you have love, you have service, you have faith, you have patience. You have works, and you know what? Your works are the best. That's, that's pretty strong words to stand on. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Everybody may see your love, your works, your service, your faith, your perseverance. But I know your heart, he said, and you're allowing things to creep into your mind that are not acceptable. And that's what he's focusing on. This is great. Keep that up. But work on the things that are causing you compromise. They allowed Jezebel in. They allowed her in. Jezebel didn't come barging in. He says that you allowed Jezebel in. So Jezebel knocks on the door. Go, go away. I'm, I don't, I'm, nobody's home. Go away. It's Jezebel, just let me in for a minute, please. Nope, go away. Come on, just, just for a minute. I won't, I'm not going to stay long. And I know, I know the things that you don't like. We're not going to talk about those things. Just let me, we're going to talk about this. Okay, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not what I see all my buddies doing. Just, okay, Jezebel, come on in. And when you let a Jezebel in, you open yourself to compromise. Laodicea. Chapter 3, verse 15. I know your works, Christ says to Laodicea, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is the epitome of the sin of indifference. And the result is a complete distaste on the palate of our master. Stand for something, he says. Stand for anything. But don't be lukewarm about it. Don't compromise. Don't be indifferent. Don't be one foot on this side and one foot on this side. Stand for something. Let's go to Corinth. These are all messages that we can take to heart here. Passover is, as we said, less than three months away. We need to continue, continue looking and purging out that old leaven. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Famous, probably don't even need to turn there. You probably know it that well. Your glorying, verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Obviously, a lesson we go into in detail in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But don't overlook that first sentence. Stop patting yourselves on the back, God says. Your glorying is not good. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Look for those little leavens so that we do not compromise. We cannot be found compromising when Christ comes back to his people? Have we let any little Jezebels in that cause us to compromise even in little ways, in pride, in arrogance, in entertainment, in social media, in dress, in language? These are questions we need to ask ourselves as we approach Passover, like Christ did in writing to the seven churches. What if every habit was posted as an update on your Facebook page. What if everything, every habit that you don't like, that you're trying to break, when you succumb to that compromise, what if that was posted as an update on your Facebook page or a Snapchat picture went out to all of your all of your contacts? Is there anything you would want removed from your Facebook page if something you did, everything, if everything we did was posted on your Facebook page, how many things would you be going through to try to remove? Let's go to Romans chapter 12. God cares about sin, God is not indifferent. And whether, it, even if it's not your sin, our hearts should break at sin. Our hearts should break when we see innocent people suffering at the hands of someone's sin. We cannot become so numb because the world is so bad that it just floats by and it doesn't affect us as human beings. We must become hypersensitive to sin, it must affect us because it, every sin affects God. God is emotional about every sin. Romans 12. This is in context of once Paul gets through a lot of his doctrinal explanations in Romans, we come now to the part about the rubber meets the road, the living sacrifice that is talked about at the beginning of chapter 12. And we get to the scripture reading from today. And notice what Paul is talking about that is of importance. We're not talking about sorcery and murdering. Because for the most part, none of us ever get involved in that. We read those things. We are on the right path. We are followers of God. Apart from anyone who has those habits that are, are in secret, most of God's people, that those things in Revelation 22 rarely apply to us. The things in Proverbs... That's the things we need to pay attention to. Those little things. Those little things that cause us to mingle with Satan. And see here, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't be hypocritical. That's important to God. Abhor what is evil. Don't be numb. Don't just go, this world is crazy. Abhor evil. Every time you see evil, it should affect you. We should abhor evil. And when that when we abhor evil, that drives us back to God and helps us cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. These are things that are important to God, for his people, that we need to take to heart and make habits. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Weep with those who are victims of sin. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things and then associate with the humble, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Where you have control, don't be a warmonger. Be a man of peace. These are all little things, but they are the things we need to pay attention to. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Vengeance is not ours. As angry as you get, vengeance is God's. So relieve yourself of that stress and leave it in his hands. He will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap coals of fire on his head. And this is all encapsulated in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's that old saying that says it only takes one bad apple to ruin a whole bunch. When you have God's Holy Spirit, one good apple can fix a whole bushel of bad apples. Because that's what God's Spirit does. God's Spirit overcomes evil with good. June 4th, 1940. The world was fighting a brutal enemy. Nazi Germany. And England was heavily engaged in this war. The United States hadn't joined yet. And Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England, sought to check on the resolve of his people. I have myself, he said, full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, and if necessary, alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every one of them. That is the will of Parliament, and that is the will of the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to their death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. And we shall fight on the seas and on oceans and and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches and we shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets and we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if which I do not for a moment believe this island Or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the cease, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. We have a similar adversary, a similar enemy, Satan the devil, and his weapon is sin. We must never surrender to that enemy, whether we do it together or whether we do it alone. And that is the spiritual warfare we are really up against. It is the spiritual warfare against sin. When you hear spiritual warfare, think sin. Think battling compromise. Think indifference to sin. As we continue to build our family through the twofold vision of pursuing excellence and becoming the safest place, let's be very attentive to the effects that sin has on us, that sin has on society around us. Our hypersensitivity to sin, its potential effects on us, the impact it has on mankind, and that impact that we see every day on the news and in our interactions. We must resolve to be absolute when it comes to sin. You wouldn't eat a properly cooked brownie with just a hint of hamster droppings. In fact, you would spit it out. Indifference, being lukewarm to sin gives God the same reaction. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at CGIBurlington.org.